These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. After all of the other recent developments and interactions we've been discussing, I want to return us to exploring the tomorrows of Abby's relationship with Harry. It once more seems clear that Abigail is not comfortable being intimate with an audience. Understandably, not many are. Mm -hmm. Which makes further exploration between the two complicated. But with Rebecca gone... It also forces Abby to confront her own feelings about James. Thanks to some time and space between what happened in Memphis and some perspective through her own explorations with Harry, Abby is able to consider the situation with a clearer head and less emotion clouding the situation, like jealousy, competition, or hurt. Confronting those feelings is something that's overdue. Mm. Over the course of these chapters, Harry ends up trying to understand her relationship with Abby as well. Now that she's gotten what she thought she wanted, Harry now has to consider if her time with Abigail is just a step along her journey and not a destination in and of itself. Obviously, nothing is yet resolved, but these internal moments with Harry and with Abigail are acknowledging that feelings are complex and relationships are fungible. Just because they desire to be sexually intimate does not mean that they will last as a couple, or even that they should. They had to try something new and then figure out from there if that is something that they should continue to pursue. This turn might feel odd, after you and I have hyped up the relationship this much. But the fact that it is more complex feels a certain amount of capital Mm. T true. Just because Harry ends her telegram to truth, wow, okay, there's a metaphor I didn't expect to run into. I mean, the truth's name is the thing that, like, keeps on giving, isn't it? Because every time it comes in, you have to sort of question, like, is there a double meaning here? And usually (laughs) the answer to that is, like, You think there's only two meanings? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Even though Harry ends her telegram without a declaration of love, it does not mean that their story is over. It's something that I think I'm very glad that we have this opportunity here to see both of these characters reflecting on their relationship from a point of not upheaval or sort of turbulent change, because... You could argue that their coupling, their initial coupling, was a reactive result. It was Mm. the thing that happened as a result of the unique circumstances that they found themselves in, of having just come in from a night out, Abigail having seen Rebecca and James getting together, Mm -hmm. and Harry seeing her seeing this, and just there's a lot of new 
data coming in and so mm -hmm. their decision was the result of a lot of upheaval mm -hmm. and now we're at a point where there is more or less a sort of neutral state there is a neutral playing field where they had to consider what is my active feelings on this now that like i'm sitting with this and that's good because something that can i want to i want to phrase this properly because something that can be a bit of a blind spot perhaps when mm. you come to sort of shipping non-heteronormative couples in media mm. is that because there is such a proclivity of male female couples and things like that there's so much opportunity for exploration of the range of different types of relationships that can come about whether a relationship is meant to last whether it's a fling whether it's something that is long term if it's something if it's like the one true pairing or something like that mm -hmm. and the thing is that all of that is just as true for any other combination of male male female female and all the wide spectrum in between mm -hmm. that not every relationship is destined to be forever it's just that because there is less exploration of these relationships in media it feels as if we don't have as much opportunity to explore the evolving emergent and multiple relationships that can exist over a lifetime with any relationship on the lgbtq plus spectrum it's a good thing that we get the sense that harry and abigail having this relationship at least from harry's perspective it's not just a given thing that I finally found the one woman who I get the feeling I can be like this with. And it's not just a given thing that it's like, well, I better settle and that like I have to grab onto this because this is going to be my only chance at this. No, she is considering it. She, and that's what she should be able to do. I think the reason why you and I were hyping it up as much as we were is because it's just good to see more more relationships of this nature in all its different forms because representation matters. It all, that's just a universal rule that the more we see it, the more we normalize it and therefore can explore the different nuances and myriad events and occasions. We even get to explore the examples of relationships that are toxic because they can exist too. And in an upcoming book, we shall see a relationship between a same-sex partnership that is very toxic and mm. you will know the one I'm talking about mm -hmm. but it's good to have that because it just sells the reality the truth that there is just as much spectrum of experience out there and your options aren't limited just because it's the off the beaten path of what media has reinforced is the normal path put more succinctly Toby and I appreciate the careful line Alex is walking in regards to not giving in to the very tired stereotype of gay relationships ending badly, but also being willing to suggest that there might not be a quote-unquote happy ending to this relationship. But we'll get more into that in a few episodes' time. It's interesting that you bring up the concept of shipping, because mm. as some... New Century fans may be aware there was a specific YouTube creator that I have been following. That would be Eldana Doublecast. Link in the show notes. I did my own shipping list for a lot of New Century characters, 
and I was borrowing some of her jokes in the pursuit of all of this. Therefore, the pairing of Harry and Abigail, to quote Eldana Doublecast, you just want to see good things for Harry. And honestly, who wouldn't? Mm. Now, after the pairing has become reality, we now say, okay, it's happened. We're happy that the two of them connected. What next? Shipping culture in general, I don't always know because I haven't necessarily dove too deep into it. If anyone expects that some of these relationships will actually last, they want to see what would happen if these pairings did happen. And that may just be because they're imagining some hot kind of intimacy that dovetails with whatever their own proclivities are, which is also perfectly valid. But maybe they're also intrigued by the potential drama that might result by these two people pursuing a relationship. Yeah. Like, maybe the potential toxicity is a desired outcome to a certain extent. Like, I've seen some shipping pairings and potential fanfic that results from that as being a little bit on the dark spectrum. And that's something that those fans and those creators needed to externalize for whatever reason inside their own heads. Mm. This is an example of, this is a pairing that we would like to see last, but because Abigail and Harry are being adults about this, they Mm. are now acknowledging that maybe it won't, and Mm. maybe that's okay. They've achieved a certain level of connection, and I think that was what they and we were hoping for. Mm. And I think now it's just a case of, with our fingers crossed, the idea of whether or not this continues or doesn't continue, that that connection isn't something that will be like a casualty mm-hmm. like if the story develops in like either direction. I think that's the feeling we have. And a lot of this is a bit of a tangent from my original notes. So I apologize if any of this felt like it was treading water a little bit. But to bounce off of a point that you were bringing up, that they're being adults about this, that's exactly what I appreciate, is that this is a mature level of introspection and one that feels like an opportunity of the narration and literary format in this book. In films, it can be common for characters reflecting on their feelings and concerns in regards to a relationship to be externalized through a conversation with another character. Like we were discussing the other day when uh, I brought up Castle. Sure. They will have a friend that they meet up with, and that is an opportunity for them to voice their thoughts on Mm -hmm. it without literally going inside their head and Mm -hmm. hearing them voice their thoughts. This is one factor in the proclivity of the whole situation that the Bechdel test was originally an observation of. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the format of characters having conversations about relationships like this. This is more of an issue when those kind of conversations are the only type of conversation you will see female characters depicted to have. That was more the issue that it was pointing out. Not that they're having this conversation at all. It's like, well, can we just have like the whole spectrum of conversations? A variety of experiences. Mm. The internal life of a woman involves more than whatever man she's dating slash fucking. For sure. 
But being able to hear the internal thoughts of Abigail and Harry like we are here, it enables an honest insight like this, one that can be offloading of reflection and introspection, mm. and we can appreciate that. You know, anyway, Abigail's thoughts help show that she's not being inconsiderate. She is very focused on herself in Memphis, and while Rebecca and James's relationship made her sore, she isn't so self-centered that she's unable to recognize the hard position that James is now in and what effect her circumstances with Harry will have on him. It's an awkward scenario, but it's not what she ever wanted. She didn't like want James to be put into this situation mm. as a sort of retaliation against the feelings that she had at seeing him with Rebecca. I mean, not logically. No. There might have been a little bit of that in the moment, which we don't necessarily mm. again get to see because that flashpoint is still from Harry's point of view. Sure. Like, I'm not going to put Abigail on a pedestal and no. say that she's never capable of selfish reactions that might not be healthy or anything like that. But sure. it also honestly makes me wonder if the events in Chapter 25... What happened on the Natchez with, first, the whole event that we already discussed with her fiddling with the wind door while James was literally trying to get a handle on his half of the endowment, as well as potentially putting Annie in danger by insisting on remaining on the ship. If those events might have, like, made something click in her brain without her putting actual words to it in her head and that's why she's feeling the way she is now in regards to her regret with james and her trying to be adult in future considerations with harry i do think that abigail is someone who is capable of quite elaborate introspection and emotional insight what you're getting at there i think is very true is that she has a tendency to need to externalize her feelings first mm. through some sort of action. She has to do something to kind of take whatever she's feeling and externalize it. And once she's done that, she has the capacity to then think on it more. She gets to actually take a step back and consider things, which is what we're actually seeing here. She has formed this relationship with Harry and now we're getting to see her think on it. Time has passed and there's a bit more space in that sense mm. what i do like is that as you say she is capable of having selfish impulses and that's not necessarily entirely always unfair because she has a point she shouldn't necessarily have to end things with harry just because of james that doesn't feel like that would be a fair scenario either mm -hmm. as for harry she is continuing to explore and contemplate mature adult territory what does it mean to be in a relationship, to face the prospect of no longer being in one? It was a huge thing that she wanted, but now that she has it, life continues, and she is starting to recognize that. And this is all part of Harry being able to take more and more of a step into the world beyond her workshop. I really like that we get to see her consider that, that she isn't getting so caught up in it that you feel as if it's a one-sided form of analysis where like harry is just like 
oh man, this is the best. I hope this lasts forever. She is actually for a first relationship considering it in a really mature way. And that's great to see. I don't necessarily know what the connection is in terms of, we discussed the concept of the different kinds of intelligence that exist. Mm. I don't know if puissance with one form of intelligence can somehow translate into puissance with another form of intelligence. There are probably many examples of someone that has that is a very good scholar, but is very poor on the emotional intelligence end of the spectrum. Mm. But it seems clear from what Harry is going through right now that we are seeing her develop that emotional intelligence, something which probably has been underworked for her, considering not just the personal barriers that she would have to overcome, but Mm. also the way other people treated her because of her neurodivergence Mm. and the way that her family sort of protected her from fallout from the consequences of poor socialization. It's a way of adding more complexity to it, because I think that within Arlington and within her life up to this point, it would be so easy to assume that any and all forms of social interaction will be things that are just inherently difficult and impenetrable for Mm. Harry. What we are seeing here through her own internal narration and just her interaction with other characters is that just because there are things about how she operates that can be difficult for other people to grasp, that doesn't mean that it's a sort of like necessarily a two-way thing because this is actually what harry does she's able to kind of look at a thing and consider how it works if someone shows her the blueprint she can figure it out precisely much like how she took the clock in the arlington house and took it apart so that she could understand the components and then reassemble it she is continuously trying to just observe people and not necessarily take them apart. It's just a case of I'm trying to figure out the internal workings of people and understanding them as people. And Mm, she's mm. not like unadept at that. And that's what I always appreciate is that we're continuing to show the range of experiences in different people on the spectrum, that it's not just a case of binaries, that there is absolutely zero chance of progression or refinement in certain areas that they have because there's a difference between i inherently have trouble figuring this stuff out and i have trouble with this but only because i haven't had the experience with it that is the thing that harry is having is that she just hasn't been afforded these experiences because people assumed that her makeup meant that she would not function well in it and therefore it meant that she couldn't have those experiences if i were to hold up a sign at a protest it would probably be something on the lines of fight the false binary but no one would understand what i'm talking about and it's (laughs) it's too vague a concept that could apply to so many other things and it would literally just be me standing outside of my house holding a sign with people driving past going what the fuck is he talking about um (laughs) there are dozens of us dozens (laughs) (laughs) but yeah There is a tendency in humanity to want to reduce things down to what they believe is a manageable level, which Mm. often results in a black or white dichotomy. And Mm. sometimes dichotomies do exist, 
but more mm-hmm. often it isn't one of two things. It's one of 20 things in different sets and orders and connections to each other. And there are people out there that just get way too frustrated because they want something simple. Bitch, life isn't simple. Mm. And okay, now I'm uh, suddenly embarrassed that I use the word bitch. I try not to use that word. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, like, making sure you don't do the Jesse Pinkman excess of it and mm. just using it in certain contexts, I think, is uh, more permissible than okay. yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. But uh, I don't say that with a position of authority. But the fictional moment that comes to mind as a point of reference was something that I was actually thinking about earlier when I was thinking about the characters acting from a place of neutral status rather than like plateau. react like a plateau which is in avatar the last airbender when they are trying to rescue king boomy and mm. uh ang is remembering the idea of positive and negative i think it's called uh like positive and negative jing and boomy says uh, there's also neutral Jing, and Ang says there's three types of Jing, and he says, well, technically there's forty-seven or something like that, <laughs> which is just this great moment of like, yeah, there's actually like a whole lot more range out there than is kind of the case, and mm-hmm. it's why I always uh, like that moment because that it's like, well, yeah, there is like a lot of fluidity and branching paths, and to get back on point, the idea of binaries helps us to categorize things and navigate the different areas of life that we have to come to terms with. But the role of art is always to help us to make sense of the in-betweens, to be able to voice and replicate and depict things that feel like they fluctuate between multiple states all at once. And you can point to and look at and say, this is many things all at once and this is the human condition that we are not just some binary thing at any and all points i'm probably saying thing too much this episode but it's helping me to articulate things damn it (laughs) i did it again i shall get better as the session goes on as a final note i will add that giving children a simplistic explanation for why the world is the way it is is a way of giving them answers that they can handle when they can't deal with too much complexity, when they don't have the tools to deal with complexity. And I would say the real issue is in holding on to the idea of the binary as a tool far past its actual use. Mm. At some point, adults have to be able to live with the complexity of the world rather than take refuge as mentioned previously, in tools that no longer help them function in the world. And reducing everything to binaries is a big problem that humans, not just in America, but all over the world, have not really always dealt with properly. Thinking about it further, maybe it's time to stop simplifying ideas for children altogether. Maybe we need to find a way to embrace complexity teach that to our children. Rather than giving simple explanations, instead find a better way to explain the complicated ideas that make up our world. We may not all have big brains like Harry and James, 
or powerful emotional intelligence like Sarah Arlington. But if you show people healthy relationships, both in real life and media, then they will be better prepared for having healthy relationships. There is a way to have story drama without having people behave like morons. And likewise, if you aim to show that the world is complex, then maybe people will pine less nostalgically for a time when it was quote-unquote simpler. Isn't it better to work harder at doing a good job from day one, rather than having to fix the messes that occur by doing things quick and dirty? And yes, I know that saying that is easier said than done, especially when people benefit from doing things quick and dirty. I have been exhausted from the weekday grind for months now, and even more so during and after the move into our new apartment. I absolutely know that Maureen has felt the same way. And imagine if we had a child to care for on top of all that. It's very difficult to fix a system while you're inside it. You can't just stop everything and pause while you do so. Life goes on. But let's get away from the navel-gazing and back to our story. Now I want to revisit the theme of journeys present mm -hmm. in Steamheart. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot more about this in our concluding episodes, but at least in this brief moment, I want to highlight that even though Team Steam is on a very literal journey to the southern door and back again, all our other characters are on personal journeys of self. We've been alluding to that from the very beginning, but it sort of comes into greater focus in these chapters. Even though Steamheart has a concrete beginning, middle, and end, the journeys of our protagonists will last as long as they do. Mm -hmm. That's why I love quoting that Peter Beagle line. Life doesn't have a happy ending, even if a story eventually does. Stories are informed on by reality, but they are not reality, because reality keeps going. One could argue that's why stories are called fiction. They are constructs that serve a purpose and therefore need a circumscribed place to exist in order to serve that purpose, mm. whether just entertainment or something greater. If stories never stopped, then how could we differentiate them from life? And all of a sudden, I realize that I've gotten onto a bit of an existence tangent there. <laughs> Sidestepping the most eye-catching element of the book's opening statement that all of us would gain something, all of us would lose something, and not all of us would be coming back, I'd like to emphasize the first two remarks there. The thing about Steamheart is that closing the portals that have caused the world to be the way it is that opening gambit initially feels like such a firm and understandable endpoint. It's a means of enacting definitive change and potentially bringing the current state of things to an understandable end. And yet, as we progress on this journey, that hasn't exactly felt like as much of an endpoint as it once may have. Yes, we're moving forward and making some progress in closing the wind doors, but between the loss of the Arlingtons and the conversations about the future, it feels as if there is more 
beyond this journey, that life will continue to be uncertain beyond what is achieved here. Steamheart is, in fact, a turning point, not an end. That is why there is so much significant in not just the idea that it is implied to be an end for at least some members of the team. It nevertheless is emphasizing that there is more beyond this, that in matters to come, we will have gained something and lost something. It's something that I think Sharon in particular will voice on School of Movies, that there is so much more that can happen to a person that is significant than just them dying or that someone is lost. Mm. There is so much more that people must face and live with and do than just the binaries, as we were talking about a moment ago. There's this feeling that characters are either alive or they are dead, and people emphasize those binaries so much that they are blind to the things in between, the idea of what do we lose through the sort of alchemy of living our lives and gaining something, but sometimes losing something of like equal or unfortunately sometimes more value than what we obtained. That's the fascinating process of it. And the more I go into Steamheart, the more I realize that this story really is this introspection on the concept of journeys in general. And now we're yeah. saying the word journey so much that I'm <laughs> tempted to just start singing. He took the midnight train going anywhere. That reference made all the more amusing by the fact that Steamheart bears a strong resemblance to a train. <laughs> to bring this to an actual sensible destination, the idea of our characters being here and being together, that is the initial cell of Steamheart. But the thing that gives it dimensionality and depth is the idea that we're getting to see all these characters come together for this, but it's implied that this is not a static crossover this is a thing where our characters will actually be different to the personalities that you saw them as we went into this big storytelling event. It, it's not just a party, it's something more than that. And ideally, that's the way it always should be. To reference the Muhammad Ali quote that Alex used to start off his most recent story, Panther Soul. A man who views the world the same at 50 as he did at 20, has wasted 30 years of his life. I don't want to overstep. Mm -hmm. Because, obviously, as you have alluded to, not everybody is going to make it back. And we haven't yet discussed what the implications of it are, because that has more than one meaning, as we mm -hmm. referred to back during our initial episodes on Steamheart. You mentioned briefly the problem with killing a character and therefore mm. ending whatever story potential they have. And that is a reason why certain death tropes are very frustrating to audiences mm. and reviewers of media and everything like that. Because it's... a death of a character is often used as motivation for someone else, usually the lead character, mm. usually a white male. And mm. we are understandably annoyed by all of that. 
the word that comes to mind to describe it is that it's an immensely hollow story turn. Mm. Hollow in the sense that you are now creating an absence of void. If implemented improperly, it can feel like it's unearned or has less substance, and it can mm. feel as if you're not actually earning it. That's why I think it's something treated with caution because otherwise it just becomes this thing that feels not just like an empty move, but a move that creates emptiness. The very structure of Steamheart as a story means that, at least to a certain extent, we're avoiding some of those traditional pitfalls. Steamheart is very much an ensemble cast and isn't even centered around a white male protagonist the way one of its influences was. Mm. Firefly was also an ensemble cast, but one could argue that as the captain, it centered around Malcolm Reynolds. Here, who is the central character? Is it Annie? Is it Abigail? There's a fluctuation, and part of the issue here is that all of these characters were the central protagonist of a different story, and now they're all gathered together in one place, much like Avengers was. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As a result of that, and as a result of fiction needing to address and depict aspects of reality, of life, it feels appropriate that a story should not avoid discussing death. Because Mm -hmm. as a real binary... Death and life orbit each other. They are one of those true Mm. yin and yang aspects to existence. Even the oldest cultures understood this, where gods of life and death were always the most powerful of a given pantheon, and sometimes even made manifest in one deity. Anana slash Ishtar and Freya were goddesses of both love and war the concept that encourages the creation of life, and the act that causes the most death. Alex himself has talked many times about, regardless of how the story actually ends up, he has to feel like he is genuinely putting his characters into dangerous circumstances, or it feels like there are no stakes. Mm -hmm. You know, he can't keep them wrapped in bubble wrap, completely protected, from any consequences of what's going on. So the threat Hmm. of death does have to be present in the story, but it's all about treating that death with the appropriate respect. Respect Hmm. for what is being lost. Hmm. Loss being one of those central tenets of New Century. It just keeps coming up. Mm -hmm. As a point of comparison or an example of this, you need to take risks and venture into dangerous territory in order to grow and Mm -hmm. to move beyond these safe but rather insular territories. The best example of that is Harry, where we've talked about how her parents kept her in a very safe space Mm -hmm. to ensure her safety. But we are seeing in this that by them finally affording her the opportunity to go out into dangerous territory, she is starting to actually grow and develop and change. 
that is so necessary, but it is not without risk. So we've been discussing some very weighty themes up till this point, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them are themes that we're going to come back to because we still have a lot more story to discuss. But now I want to discuss one of the best scenes. Frau vs. Abigail. Round one. Fight. Mortal Kombat! <laughs> no, very not Mortal Kombat, thankfully. <laughs> To be fair, with uh, Rao involved, it would be more like Street Fighter, and Rao would be like Sagat because she would throw a tiger uppercut. <laughs> as a long walk to a shallow drink. There was a actually long conversation at one point I was having with Alex in mm-hmm. DMs where we were discussing the concept of a new century fighting game. And how um, different characters' movesets might match up to actual characters in fighting games like Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat or... What was the one with all of the fantasy characters? Night Stalkers? Death Stalkers? Oh, Dark Stalkers. Dark Stalkers, yes, exactly. Mm. If I can salvage any of that, because I feel like I don't necessarily want to waste it. I think we absolutely could have a tangent uh, through the window episode where we would just kind of talk through... A theoretical new century fighting game because we talked about how Steamheart would be the open world game and everything like that. But as or the, the side scroller at one point, yeah. Oh, the side scrolling beat 'em up would also work as well. Exactly. There's there's many genres that would fit, and you know the let them go Resident Evil, the, <laughs> all all of that would work. The conversation with Alex I mentioned covers a lot of characters from books we have not covered in the retrospective. So look forward to that Century Tales episode sometime in the future. I screenshotted my discussion with Alex, so good ideas would not be lost. To discuss the actual event in the story, as opposed to this funny fighting game tangent we've gone on, which was entertaining. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, the fight itself is a degree of entertaining, but I want to talk about it in the larger story context. As mentioned previously, a hero fighting another hero is common in media. Mm. When you have two people fighting and you don't want either of them hurt, that makes for exciting drama. And Mm. most of the time, the fighting is an argument. Social, verbal, not physical. Mm. But in certain kinds of media, like this one, it could end up being an actual fight. And Mm. the more dangerous each individual character is the greater the chance of real injury. But here, the fight is not over a misunderstanding or a personality clash. Mm. It is a form of communication via other means. Honestly, it brings to mind some of the content that we've referenced before in terms of how much Super Eyepatch Wolf loves MMA and wrestling and media that's based around those concepts Mm. it allows for the participants to learn from each other in ways mere words could not suffice even where they're not a language barrier Mm. in the end no one is actually hurt in this sparring match between Crow and abigail the bond between the two of them is made stronger and both women have taken something away from the experience 
I appreciate the Lucius Fox moment from The Dark Knight where Miguel hears what Abigail is suggesting and then says, Let me understand this. He said slowly. You made a force of nature from another world, one that towers above you, that has the power to bring down zebras with her bare paws, one who moves so fast she could slice your throat and be 20 yards away before you hit the ground. And your decision is to fight her? He shrugged. Good luck. <laughs> that is pretty fun. Yeah. Other than that, yeah, this is just an excellent conversation piece between the two most capable hand-to-pull combatants on the team. Their approach to one another during the fight is more a recognition of the other and their strengths and techniques than it ever is about exerting and pro proving their own strength. Abigail takes on board Krau and adapts, and Krau sees Abigail work and has to exert an effort to actually end things decisively because she knows that Abigail is pushing hard and can take this match if Rao doesn't respond with a similar level of determination. I mean, That's... to be perfectly honest, she herself points out that she lets Abigail win a couple of times. She but knows all. No, not all of them, because Prow knows that she outclasses Abigail in a number of ways mm. and doesn't want to humiliate someone mm. that is a member of her team, a member mm. of her tribe, although that is a thing that is still in the development stages, one might say. But it's there that she realizes that in attempting to learn from Abigail, how much Abigail has learned from her, mm. and as a result gets a greater respect of her mm. combatant, because it's clear that it's not just about proving yourself or anything like that. She doesn't maybe doesn't completely understand it herself, because mm. it's on a different level. Like this... Sparring matches may have been something that happened in Durga Tribe as a result of, like, trying to teach someone how to protect themselves. Rao herself had to teach Miguel. It's just that this is a very different circumstance where someone is approaching as, like, a veteran warrior themselves going up against a potentially superior opponent. Mm. Honestly, considering what... Rao had to face in trying to teach Miguel to defend himself in cases where, like, he's even more outclassed by mm. even just, like, the basic cats of Rama. She might even be curious mm. how a veteran fighter of this world would be able to respond to her. And she learns right. not just what they are capable of from the beginning, but mm. also what they are capable of learning from her. Precisely. I could go on to say that a lot of people learn things from her unexpectedly, but we're not talking about that particular book just yet. <laughs> well, that's precisely it. She's able to see what a human older than Miguel, who has developed their own fighting style, is capable of in a safe environment. And that's really valuable to her. It's very similar in a way to Frank demonstrating to her and mm. educating her on how human guns work. It's mm. like Abigail doing her own form of that, where she is showing Rao how she acts as a combatant. And that is 
really informative. But unlike the guns, I think Rao is able to actually connect to this more because it's not something that she she respects it without fearing it. Mm, yeah, and exactly. She could even look at human firearms and go, well, that's just cheating. In point of fact, in response to the previous episode where we discussed Rao and guns, there was an extended conversation with Alex on the Fireside Alliance Discord. He said part of the background unspoken detail was that Durka tribe in particular viewed most ranged weapons as dishonorable to use in combat, much like certain ancient Greeks did. In his words, it's all well and good for a tiger to consider close-up single combat the way of things. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. But they are built twice as large or more than a leopard. If Lyseth and her brother were wiser, they would have used their bows from hiding to try and snipe at Hrow during that first chapter of Tiger's Eye. I'm not saying it would have worked, or at least we would certainly hope it didn't. But the leopards were arrogant, trying to best Hrow at the style of fighting she was best at. By the way, if there are any long-time listeners that want to join the Fireside Alliance Discord, let me know via email or on the School of Movies Discord. I would love to have more ongoing discussion there. What is the final score? It's something like, is it actually as high as something like 10, 7 or yes, 8? It yeah. is 10, 7, yeah. Yeah. But like, that's kind of the thing I really appreciate about it. Then what I was getting at is that the first couple of hits, definitely a, all right, let's let you get a few things so this isn't a wash. Mm. But it gets to a point where, Abigail is actually landing a couple of hits with enough speed where it's like, oh, okay, you're, you know, I didn't actually account for that. I am going to stop putting the kid gloves on and actually, like, respond in kind. That's a really good moment, especially because when she does land the last hit, she realizes that Abigail kind of had her hand, like, right in the tiger's mouth, which is a great visual. A great visual and a great metaphor, yes. Hmm. The final sign of recognition between the two is the acknowledgement that Abigail thought to ask Miguel what the proper way to display an honourable concede of defeat would be, showing that she went into this knowing that the outcome would not be in her favour and knew her opponent's strengths. Once more, Abigail is displaying her developing abilities as a diplomat, and this time she even gets to speak it in her own language. Mm. Yeah. Side note before we go on to the next topic, I want to highlight not just yours, but our own developing abilities as podcasters, Mm -hmm. because something that I've been working on and that I've noticed you working on as well is that even as we are preparing all of this scripted response to each other, we are dipping in and out of it with interjections or elaborations on whatever we've written and then finding a way to lead back into some of those prepared points because we made them and they're good stuff. (laughs) And it it just all flows very well together in a way that's kind of... It makes me appreciate the artistry and just how much we've kind of gotten better at this whole experience of working with scripted stuff and unscripted stuff. This has always been something that is the result of a conversation between us two and us challenging and putting ourselves 
into a state where we have to kind of think and adapt on the fly. It is very similar to what Abigail enacts and pursues here, where she wants to be able to gain a deeper understanding by kind of putting herself into a position where she gets to exercise some of her strengths, but still do so with a certain level of not full control. There is always someone else in the mix, and that is what you and I are doing episode to episode. We are having a verbal spa where we get to develop something that comes about through both of us interacting. One might even say a dance. Mm. <laughs> if we're going to continue coy flirtation that we've been developing between us two. If it's coy, I'm not doing my job right. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I will add that the narrated physicality of this scene is something that's kind of wonderful to partake of. We already referenced a little bit earlier about getting to hear Maureen narrate Crow again for large swathes of the book. But as the story describes events, like the scene a moment earlier with Hrow permitting Harry to experience what it's like to be carried by a tiger at full speed, this fight makes for a very dynamic action set piece that is well narrated by Maureen. It reminds us of the power of that narration in Tiger's Eye, and is one of the few times in this novel we once more see the world completely through her eyes, not just in some of those earlier moments where she's hallucinating the gods of her world and everything like that, but like the fight scene between herself and the monkeys, for example, back in Tiger's Eye. This is what that brings to mind. Side note, I very recently saw a video on YouTube of monkeys actually like throwing stuff at two tigers, like literally trying to fight with something that so severely outclasses them. And I was just thinking to myself, this reminds me of something. There you go, Alex. If you're doing your own sort of video edit of Tiger's Eye, you've got the footage to use. Though the fight itself has few stakes, it nonetheless manages to include excitement, surprise, solemnity, and even humor. What mm. with, as you mentioned earlier, Abigail literally able to catch a cat by its tongue. Mm. Of all the scenes in Steamheart, this fight and the conversation with Miguel beforehand would be up there in my top five moments in this story. Having a fight where it's explicitly made apparent that like there is no risk of the characters sort of seeking to do long-term damage to one another. It's not a case of, all right, these are two characters who are fighting to the death or something like that, as much as I voiced the Mortal Kombat like, mm -hmm. sentiment as we started this subject. By doing that, it basically means that we have to question. It leads us to think about what we've spoken about in the past, which is, okay, so if the fight isn't about beating the other person or severely harming the other person, what is it about? And as much as it might feel like, oh, well, if this isn't a dramatic main fight, then like, what's the point of it? It's like, well, we're saying that there's more to it than just that. And that is the point. 
we get to see how Abigail responds to something like this. And she gets to say, I'm not trying to do this in some sort of aggro, like I'm trying to prove myself way, but I'm also showing enough awareness of myself to know that like there's at least a little bit of wanting to like prove yourself. Prove yourself. Like that the goal is not to win. And one of my favorite fights in an anime series that like Super Eye Patch Wolf will often talk about with the same level of enthusiastic, immersive analysis as he would with wrestling is one of the sort of shonen jump anime called hunter x hunter in that one there is a very good fight between the main character gotten and this sadistic clown person uh, called uh, killua the point of the fight even going into it is not that Gon expects to beat the opponent. He wants to land a hit. He has encountered this character once before, and they both knew that there was no point in them even fighting because he would destroy him. But at one point, he says, I am going to land a hit on you. And there's an intense action sequence that unfolds, and the tension is not in can this person subdue and finally beat them? It's can this person achieve the goal that they have set for themselves? And both characters engage in the fight, knowing the terms of this battle. I love any moment in fiction that can understand the unique language of a fight like that. I'm suddenly trying to remember if there's any example in the MCU where two heroes are fighting and it's literally just sparring. There's no stakes. Because mm. a lot mm. of the time when heroes fight in those movies, it's because of a misunderstanding mm. or because of a clash of ideals. The stuff that happens in Avengers, the stuff that happens in Civil War, the only one that I can think of that might come close, and it's not necessarily an understood, we're just play fighting here from the beginning for both people involved would be the confrontation between Kamala and Red Dagger in the recent Ms. Marvel series. Because mm. we definitely get the impression that the two of them are fighting all out, but a handful of seconds into the fight, we can see that Red Dagger probably isn't actually trying to harm Kamala at all. He is testing her. He probably definitely wants to know if she is a threat, but at some point the quality of the combat turns and it no longer feels like we should be that worried about potential stakes between future allies and everything like that. But there's so much MCU out there. Can you think of any examples that I'm missing in terms of two heroes fighting where they're just doing it in order to have fun or doing it as like part of an additional conversation the two of them are having? I can't think of any sparring matches except for maybe when Hope is trying to train Scott. I think there are ones where from a meta level that is going on because we don't necessarily believe that these characters are going to harm each other. But within the narrative, that's not really explicit. Like I would say in the Hawkeye series, when you have... Oh, uh, oh right. The fight between the fight between Yelena and Kate Bishop. Game that's fishing. right yeah that mm. that doesn't that... have those terms but 
as an audience, it feels as if they are having that. See, that's actually probably a pretty close... We can compare the fight between Yelena and Kate to this fight between Hrow and Abigail, because even though the circumstances of it are different, Yelena is clearly so much more confident in her ability to fight and do damage, and mm-hmm. she is trying to take Kate down without doing too much additional harm. But as a result of not going full out, she is either not completely respectful of the fact that Kate does have some experience and just isn't tried and tested as much as she is, like who would be in comparison to the amount of training that a Black Widow goes through. Mm -hmm. But we still feel like that's a real fight in terms of Kate genuinely trying to stop Yelena and Mm. therefore because Yelena is holding back there are some comedic elements to it but there's Mm. also just like Yelena ends up being surprised over and over again by Kate employing tactics that she wouldn't have expected or just her efforts to not harm Kate resulting in the other woman gaining an advantage over her. Right. That's an example of a fight where the two people come into it with terms that are not as cut and dry as I want to beat or kill or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's a case of neither of them are realistically seeking to kill the other. Kate Bishop is not really someone who is like seeking to kill anyone. She just wants to stop Yelena. And Yelena is kind of more amused than anything and so she doesn't want to like exert full over the top effort on this person also she doesn't want to hurt kate because she likes kate yes aside from being amused by Mm. kate trying to fight her Mm. and there's the also additional implication of hurting kate is not her job and the rest of that conversation has been redacted due to spoilers in case people haven't watched hawkeye The more I thought about this topic, the more I considered the importance of a fight scene being an argument or a conversation in the MCU and elsewhere. We've already discussed how the first fight between Tony, Cap, and Thor in Avengers was mirrored in their later argument on the helicarrier. There are other fights in the MCU that could be equally considered low-stakes combat, such as Shan and Zhu Zhaoling in the Shang-Chi movie, or indeed the fight between Wong and Abomination moments before. This brings to mind a popular quote by Karl von Clausewitz, War is a continuation of politics via other means. Also, the fact that it was once a part of Germanic law, that whoever won a contest of single combat was considered to be the one who was quote-unquote right in a dispute. Might makes right, and all that nonsense. Even after all this time, there are some bad ideas we cannot get away from. If two people must have a conversation via other means, I'd much rather it be like Crow and Abigail. Getting back to New Century... Yeah, sorry. We went off on that long tangent, but it was a great tangent (laughs) to go on. The fact that we keep going on these tangents is probably an indication that this scene has as much weight as it does. Mm -hmm. That it goes beyond just being a thing to fill time or just a dispensable fight scene or conversation scene. 
it does have enough weight to it that we can't help but consider the different examples we've seen of it in this and in other media because there is enough to it that we get a lot from what Abigail is coming into this seeking to get out of it and we also see a lot of what Kral takes from the experience because she doesn't initiate it but she accepts it and you definitely get the feeling that this wasn't just a one-way experience. They both gained more understanding and more integration of the other as a result of this. Mm, mm, yeah. So moving beyond that splendid fight scene, because this book is the culmination of all the stories that preceded it, in Chapter 29, we unexpectedly find the fate of a few of the remaining voices of the cartographer's handbook. Carmen Santos and Henry Jackson are stationed at their next stop in Vicksburg. But on top of that, we now find out that the Bessie that Henry spoke of in his account way back in the cartographer's handbook is none other than Corporal Elizabeth Flynn, the woman who died bringing news of the Southern Door to Jeremy. This makes for an unexpected and heartbreaking callback. And as Henry insists on accompanying them to the Southern Door, it also makes us fear for what he will face in the coming chapters. Even if what lay beyond the door did not kill Flynn, it is a reminder that they are nearing dangerous ground where no one's fate is certain. And there's already been more than one example of characters from earlier stories that are not protagonists coming to a final fate as a result of these future stories. Lawton Sadler being one of them, for example. On the eve of our discussion on Chapter 30, it behooves me to remind anyone that has been following along with us that just because the Southern Door didn't kill Corporal Flynn, it did kill the rest of her group, and the experience was horrifying enough that the trauma has erased the details of what lay beyond from her memory. Our in-universe team is therefore utterly unprepared for the Southern Door, and even for those of us that know what happens next, I feel like the weight of that other alien world still hits the audience below the belt. Before we proceed, I will also add that if Toby sounds a little distracted from this point on, it's because while we were recording, he had an email regarding a disciplinary hearing from his cinema job, which hit him below the belt. The TLDR is what you and I would consider a minor infraction, ended up in him losing that job weeks later, thanks to a manager choosing to enforce internal rules very harshly. He has since come to terms with that loss, and honestly, who would want to work at such a draconian workplace? Unfortunately, this recording remains as a proof of how hurtful that moment was long ago. While the reunified States Army has been present and facilitated Team Steam's visit of the two Windows before this one, because it was named characters who felt like close friends, actually, come to think of it, were both former slash soon-to-be lovers, it felt like it was still more of a, less a series of encounters done with people in the group. Quote-unquote, yes. Mm. Harry Jackson is named, and he has presence as a narrator of a previous story in New Century. But him and the contingent of allies coming with them feel much more like external presences, people whose safety feels less guaranteed, and that would make our heroes somewhat apprehensive. I mean, this is 
the big goal here. Like mm-hmm. we're going to talk about that in a moment, but like they are so close now to the door to Mordor, so to mm-hmm. speak. And there is precedent, particularly in the case of the cartographer's handbook, which relates this new world as being something that is difficult to survive. Henry Jackson has made it this far, but he's also lost now the person that is perhaps the most important to him in Bessie. Mm. And just as there are so many occasions where good people had to be killed because they were infected uh, or they died completing their mission in various points of New Century, and because Henry Jackson is, as you referred to, not really in the group, so to speak, it's potentially a natural conclusion to be like, they're bringing this team with them from the cartographer's handbook. Are any of them going to survive? Are we going to lose members of our team going through the southern door? We don't know, but because we are genre-savvy people, we are more worried about his potential survival because he is someone that we've had more experience with. We have heard a tale of his life. Mm -hmm. And therefore, losing him, just like losing Lawton Sadler, would have more weight to it, more emphasis of these are the stakes that we're dealing with. They are someone that can be lost and not necessarily have as much story potential removed as it would be for losing one of our major protagonists. Hmm. I feel like I may have stepped on what would have been your response as well. But like you said, or rather wrote in his earlier prepared notes, this contingent of allies feel more like external presences, people whose safety feels less guaranteed, Hmm. and therefore that makes our heroes somewhat more apprehensive. I mean, but this sort of thing happens all the time in terms of, like, a really good example would actually be the Marines in Aliens. Uh, Put another bullet in the jar. Most of them we get to know in one form or another, and that's partly due to Cameron's direction in terms of giving people voices, allowing them to personalize their armor giving them their own catchphrases and everything like that. We don't necessarily get that as much here in New Century all the time, but I've gone ahead and revisited the coming chapter where we get to see both our established heroes and this this plucky squad of RSA soldiers go th- with them through the wind door, and it does feel like effort is made to make it feel not unlike the Marines landing on LV-426 and facing the Xenomorphs there in this hostile land where they are not really prepared for the kind of foe that they are about to face. Hmm. It feels as if anything that involves characters like this, it they obtain just enough characterization so we know that they aren't just red shirts or anything like that. They have had lives, they have experienced loss, and as we have discussed time and time again, there's enough in there that we can always like determine the thing that unites people is loss. So just 
focusing on that in a brief span of time that we get to know some of these characters makes them feel real to us and makes them mm. feel like they are of much value as any of the members of Team Steam. Mm. The conversation between our group and Henry Jackson and Carmen Santos and all of that is the lead up to our final moment of chapter 29, mm -hmm. which results in a more shocking cameo than even the previous two. It's one thing to have Malloy slash old Ned show up with a different face to once more deliver cryptic information to our heroes. A previous chapter in Steamheart all but told us that he would be showing up again. But to have Maggie Struther there, living in the ruins of the first town to fall to the Wendigo with our cryptical old man, boggles the mind a little bit. So I guess you could say that not only does Alex like having his mind boggled, but he loves doing that to other people. Even Jeremy is more than ready to admit that she might well not actually be Maggie, but it definitely makes us pay attention to this moment. A clever way of ensuring that this moment has a disorientating impact, even if you haven't read Cartographer's Handbook, which is, you know, more of a possibility with each book that makes cartographers less of a compelling start to get into the series, is that Abigail ruminates on the dead contributors of the handbook earlier in the chapter. She includes Maggie's name. As being someone that she will not get a the opportunity signature for, for a signature. Right up until she, quote unquote, does. Yeah. As such, her introduction immediately makes all readers sit up and take notice. Old Ned being there shouldn't be, and neither should his company. Jeremy's response is telling, because he understands what he can't understand, what these two aren't here to provide or impart. He is able to astutely conclude that the only way to gain anything that they can use from this encounter is to follow along and let this strange encounter play out yeah jeremy is the surprise voice of reason in this moment because it's clearly tangling everybody else up more significant than anything is what this moment adds to the story mm. there are so many small details that even james seems briefly flummoxed trying to figure out what pattern matters in this moment being like are these two things connected? Are these two things connected? This doesn't make any sense to my logical brain. He is trying to figure out what is significant and what is not. And Jeremy sort of helps everybody get back on track and be like, focus on the thing that seems most relevant. Stop trying to understand the whys and trying to understand what significance we can draw from this moment. And it's Abigail that understands at least one relevant pattern. In Arlington, old Ned related a possibly fictitious anecdote about Brioth and Seth that nonetheless was meant to be an information-laden warning. Here, Samson shares details about something else, a wind door opening up in England. We already know such a door exists, thanks to the earlier conversation between Abigail and Jeremy. But as these things exist in threes, Abigail now presumes that the earlier story about the white tiger also 
has a kernel of truth in it. Given they have now got a real tiger on the team and a potential wind door in that area, it means that whether this white tiger exists or not, there is now a further thread for them to explore regarding a chance that another door to Rama exists. Meaning that even if the team never figures out how to open wind doors, they might be able to get Miguel and Rao back to Rama anyway. Mm. It was Abigail, after all, who was receptive to the messages that the ghost of Verstecht wished to impart. I think that she has a knack for registering unspoken alternative methods of supernatural communication and interpretation. The looming shadow of... Will we see you again? Some of you will. Hangs over the group as they head off. Hmm, yeah. Once more, this cryptic old man who clearly knows more than he's saying, and yet keeps up this mask of, no, I'm not the person that you met before, and even our puissant people able to read others are able to get nothing off of his poker face. Mm. It does make us wonder what the eventual revelation of who this man is, who they are, is going to be. I worry a little bit if the answer at the end might end up being disappointing after all of this buildup. But then again, this is also something that Alex has planned way in advance. So I'm sure that he has an answer for who this person is. And it's not just like the fog monster in Lost, where it's a mystery box that was introduced without an actual answer of what it is. Mm. It just is such an enigmatic moment in the story, isn't it? Mm. That you get to just like see this and... The characters are not just doing the, okay, I guess we'll accept this at face value. They are actively pushing against it. Mm -hmm. And they are just staunchly refusing to acknowledge any of their questions. And so you have no choice but to kind of accept the riddles as they are. When you move away, you just get the sense that this was something bigger and unknowable, which is always going to infuriate bigger and unknowable is something that new century is going to continue to work with as we Mm. progress from phase one into phase two we've already hinted at some of those things around the edges the biggest part of the story that is the most enigmatic the most chthonic the most inscrutable has not come yet Mm. but At the very least, this manifestation of this cryptic old man, he does not seem threatening, at least. He is just a thread that has been yet to be fully revealed. And so, since they have bigger fish to fry, so to speak, they have to take what they can from this moment and move on. I think that uh, because you have this group of people who are meant to be the foremost like informed they will understand the situation better than everybody and yet this encounter just kind of sells that like even they can't know everything 
literally this is just a manifestation of that line from uh hamlet there are more things in heaven and earth etc 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 yeah on top of everything else chapter 29 is full of little moments that we love even if we don't have a lot to say about them otherwise the way that it's jeremy that helps him to figure out what is actually important in the meeting with samson and struther like we just thoroughly unpacked the way that particular scene ends with a moment that makes James and Abigail think of Lucy and their encounter long ago with Dr. Potts. Oh, I love that. It's also quite necessary because it helps bridge the gap a little between the two. It sort of helps you to say like, okay, they are struggling to be like, they have drifted a lot over Mm -hmm. the last couple of sections of this book, but this moment is just a little unspoken acknowledgement of a bond that they formed so long ago. Yeah, you're you're right that having them being able to smile at each other and get over all of the turmoil that has existed between them, not just since they were kids, but as a result of some of the events of Secret Rooms and Steamheart, that is a very heartwarming moment. Mm. James's journal entry that frames in words the visuals of that book cover that Alex and his two artists took so long to create in order to frame the mighty steam heart in this woods with the rotting plant-covered houses in the background and the dark canopy of moss and the lone skeleton hung from an oak tree that set the scene for the massive craft that is Steamheart traveling through these woods. The narrativization of that moment is great. Even the way Abigail's wish for a third edition makes us think of the book promised by Alex on the Horizon, the cartographer's world book. This final chapter sets itself up as a precipice for the named next chapter, Through the Southern Door. Fucking ominous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's it for now, I think. We're going to have a lot more to talk about in the final three chapters of part three. But uh, this has been a long journey for us, what with trying to put this together uh, in between our own individual life stuff going on here, what with Toby and his schoolwork and his other work and me with my own job being complicated and up in the air and trying to get well, Maureen over here. I was going to say, you have an important move coming up, don't you? I do. Yeah. Two <laughs> weeks. Two <laughs> weeks. Two more weeks. Two more weeks. But um, for now, we will bring our conversation to a close and we'll see you all on another trip through the wind door. Take care. Okay. Well, I got this episode out a little quicker than the last one. Our move has since happened, but I don't have room for my recording and editing setup in the new apartment yet, which has helped delay the edit as well as further recording with Toby. Ideally, all of that will be corrected very soon. But until next time, let me leave you with the only song I could do, given our earlier reference in the recording.
Share 